Hello, hello everyone, and welcome to this, another episode of Paleo Party Season 2, sponsored by the Paleontological Society. As always, I'm joined by the wonderful Emma and Chris, and by everyone here on the Twitch chat. And we have a very special guest this evening. He is a paleontologist working in science communication, with an obsession for fossil elephants, and a proud puppy parent. It's Dr. Alex Zafis, everyone! Woo! <laughs> Now we're asking all of our guests to attempt to explain what they do using the Opgoer 5 text editor, which only allows you to use the 1000 most commonly used words in English to explain something. This is especially tricky given that neither paleontology nor fossil appear amongst these words. So Alex, take it away. <laughs> all right, so let's see what I did. Uh, my work focuses on very old, large animals that lay babies like the tall, long-necked spotted horse, or that huge gray animal with the big ears and the long nose. These animals lived during a time when the world was much warmer and was changing all the time. I am studying if and how these changes made this animal go, oh, I'm going to change my dinner tonight. No more soft leaves for me. I feel like something harder, like those short leaves that grow on the ground and are full of tiny ground bits. <laughs> <laughs> to study that, I take their teeth and put them under a funny tabletop thing that makes everything look bigger. And just by looking at them, I can tell what this animal's last dinner was. From time to time, I also take parts of these animals out of the ground. And after looking at them for a long time, I say, this is from the tall, long-necked spotted horse A, or this is from the tall, long-necked spotted horse A+. I know it is easy to tell, but I really love tall, long-necked, spotted horses, especially the old ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we finally oh, got something God. to replace the green snaps. <laughs> I I don't even know where to start with that. I that just like the idea of like the this like elephant just going. Today I am done with having soft lips, and <laughs> I will. <laughs> one of those little cartoons like the line cartoons <gasps> in the background as you were like narrating it, <laughs> it was excellent. i don't think we've ever had a uh an upgoer five that features a conversation before i think you i think you're the first person to branch out into kind of new meta ways <laughs> of doing it it's very impressive <laughs> oh. right, I, yeah i feel like i have to put so many disclaimers people <laughs> 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 are gonna come for me but yeah <laughs> I, li I liked as well. My favorite was that I thought that you'd finished and then, then it continued. It was like a little sequel. It was just like, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, I also do this as well. <laughs> Sorry if that was too long, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was great. So before we go any further, uh, just a reminder to everyone that you can send in whatever questions you wish to uh, Alex and us here at the Twitch channel. You can go on the chat and type in anything to your heart's content about that you could ask anything paleo related anything else related uh and also you can do it on our twitch channel or on our twitter as well uh with the handle at paleo party yeah i think maybe let's uh let's back up and go back over some of that uh yeah you can only ask five. questions if you have really soft lips otherwise we will not accept <laughs> them no more no more questions from people with hard lips sorry Alex, how would you describe your research normally? Okay. So I will just go through the uh, the text since I, uh, I'm here. So I'm I'm a mammal paleontologist, and uh, 
Uh, I work with big mammals, and uh, so far I mostly worked with giraffes, fossil giraffes and fossil elephants, uh, some particular species, but uh, yeah, these are the groups that I uh, have mostly uh, worked with. And um, uh, I'm working with these animals mostly paleoecologically, which means that I, my job is to uh, find what their diets were and try to correlate that to past climate changes. So I want to see like the, the time that they, they, during the time that they lived, uh, what was the change, what was the, the change of the climate, if there were some dramatic climate changes and how that affected uh, their diets. And uh, this is my uh, ecological work. And uh, I also work taxonomically, but taxonomically I have worked so far only with fossil giraffes, uh, which is a pretty straightforward classic pal uh, paleontological work, which includes uh, excavation, identification, uh, classic description, taxonomic assignment. That's it. Cool. So you like work right down with traditional paleo, but also then in a really cool like macroevolutionary climate stuff as well just yes <laughs> in all the sweet spots all yeah the best spots. <laughs> um I, from that what your description of your research one question that immediately came to my mind that i really would love to know is did giraffes always have long necks or what do we see this happening is there a transition point yeah, we can see this happening actually in the fossil record is pretty obvious uh i mean not all giraffids today have very long necks today we have two species representing the uh the family which is the giraffe that we all know and the okapi which is which looks like half a horse half a zebra a little bit of a deer it's like a very peculiar and very sweet animal uh but this you we can see in the fossil record as well we can see uh fossil giraffes with short necks fossil giraffes with long necks, very big giraffes, uh, like in the size of, let's say, an African elephant, but without really a long neck, or as we imagine the long neck of a giraffe today, at least. Uh, yeah, all shapes and sizes, really. And that's why it's, like, it's a very fascinating uh, group to me. And it should be for everyone. <laughs> it sounds really cool. <laughs> Yeah, loads of diversity there. And we only have two today. It reminds me of crocodiles, actually. Mm. Yeah, crazy. We have to we have to generate just to 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 uh, correct to to correct myself. We have to generate. We don't have two species. If anybody hasn't seen an okapi before, you must Google it. It's an excellent animal. Absolutely, they're very they're very cute little creatures. I have a very sad but interesting fact about oh, the okapi. No. We're only, so, like, sorry, we're only like three minutes I'm in, so dude. Oh. I do oh, it's so I've I know what the holotype specimen of the Akapi is, and it's a belt. <laughs> oh no! Oh, really? It's a belt at the uh, at the Natural History Museum. Uh, unfortunately, the first Akapi to be uh, yeah given given holotype status was was uh, it's the distinctive color striped patterns on a, on a, on a traditional belt uh, and someone saw it and was like that's not from anything we know it, it's a it's a new it's a new species oh wow so there you so go to unpack that. yeah that is i know i know so oh, bad it's always good to have examples of bad practices <laughs> <laughs> that is yes well but yeah but that's i mean well that's an interesting i mean that's interesting though because if 
the first pe- like Europeans, inverted commas, who were sort of describing these things and giving these things names in their very colonial pursuit of naming and classifying everything. And then they spotted someone wearing a belt and they were like, hey, that's something new. That's a very fascinating and interesting story. Someone in the chat, someone in the chat has already said, where can I buy said belt? No, you cannot buy said (laughs) belt. This is a bad idea. Oh my gosh. I have a bad feeling though it went the other way where they were intending to bring back an Okapi, maybe a taxidermied version or maybe a pelt or Mm, a skin and they thought, I can use this more. More like yeah. very efficiently or something. Yeah. Two in one. It's fashion. Oh, <laughs> Goodness. Someone... <laughs> I'm afraid it went that way as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's... That reminds me of the uh, polar bear in the Dublin Museum. That um <laughs> Emma's Emma's oh, like Emma's signaling so Emma's signaling me to stop, but I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep going. Do you oh, know of the polar bear? In, I in do the know of the polar bear, of course. That's where I did my, my studies. Well, I know, I know you know. I'm asking our vulnerable guests. Oh. Um, yeah, so basically, uh, one thing I find very interesting is uh, about sort of natural history collections is the history of the natural history collections. And the polar bear in the Dublin Museum has a very interesting history because it still has a bullet hole in its head. They never bother, like, replacing it. So you can, like, see its little, like, glass eyeballs and then, like, a little perfect bullet hole. Oh man, it's dark. It's dark. dark. It was also a gift, I believe, for somebody very powerful, from somebody very powerful, and yeah, a lot to unpack there too. So let's (laughs) speaking about museums. I have a good segue. No, let's rein it back a second. So Alex, I want to. I would like to know something. Like I would like to know a little bit about the history of uh, elephants and giraffes. Like how how old as a group are they? How far back do they go? Like what are the sort of oldest examples that we know about? Where did they live? Um, and can you tell us any cool facts about them? Yes. So uh, let's start with giraffes because this is where I have uh, most of my knowledge, to be honest. Uh, so giraffes go. Uh, I would say real giraffes appeared approximately fifteen to seventeen. A uh, million years ago, uh, so they're not like extremely old. They're still within this uh, time um, uh, era that is called the Miocene, and uh, but they didn't start like really radiating adaptively until maybe uh, I want to say like eight, seven million years ago. This is when like we had uh, a big adaptive radiation of the family, and we had a lot of species uh, all across Eurasia and Africa. Uh, Now, the origin is like where the first real giraffe appeared is not uh, completely uh, resolved. Some people say that uh, the origin is Africa. We have ancestors that are from Africa for sure, but we don't know exactly where the real first giraffe uh, appeared. Some people say that the origin might be from from Asia as well. Uh, So this is I would say a short history of uh, giraffes. When it comes to to elephants, elephants go much uh, more back uh, in times that I don't have the numbers of. Oh, uh, don't worry, I, I've got my chart out this week. <laughs> yeah, I have it here, so <laughs> I came I came prepared because of you. Uh, so elephants are much further back. So. Much further, much further back. I, I think I think the first elephants. 
uh, appeared in the Paleocene, but maybe don't take my word for it because I'm <laughs> not an elephant specialist. I can tell you a little bit about their paleocology, but uh, about their origin, I'm not really the best person to ask uh, about. It suits us just fine. Sounds, <laughs> sounds great. So about 60 million years ago. I would, I would say, I think this is uh, this is where they started uh, appearing, but it's a much uh, older group than giraffes are. Giraffes are relatively uh, young, are relatively young, a young yeah. group. I actually just kind of assumed that they'd all be kind of together that like those mm -hmm. that group of animals they just seem to always come together in pictures and depictions but actually no they're so far apart in geological time yes it's not the case about rhinos rhinos are also much older than uh, than giraffes are but uh, yeah giraffes are much uh, younger uh, sure. and today we have more elephant species right than we do giraffe a day how many elephant species do we have at the moment? Three. Three? Yes. Oh, I'm thinking of something else. <laughs> we have three, and uh, it's debatable how many giraffe species we have. We definitely have two genera, and then there is the discussion whether we have six species or three species. It's like a, it's, it's an ongoing discussion right now that... Uh, uh, you know, it, it involves a lot of uh, DNA sequencing and, uh, yeah. But I would say we have more giraffid spe species than uh, elephant species. Elephant species, we have three. Cool. We have the, African, the African, the Indian elephant, and the uh, African forest elephant. The, the yeah. I think I was thinking of rhino. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, I was just thinking, um, back when we were trying to segue from museums that whenever you walk into many natural history museums they quite a few of them in comparison i guess to dinosaurs have a display of different like fossil elephants and there's a huge diversity there to put on a beautiful display um for, like mammoths and mastodons and all that kind of stuff are these kind of in your research realm as well uh i Yes and no. Um, I worked a little bit with some mastodon uh, species, but my work focused more on a group called uh, dinotherids, which is a group that lived throughout the Miocene, the whole Miocene. So I'm not opening my chart right now. <laughs> um, yeah, like from, from basically 25 to uh, 5 million years ago. Um, and that was a quite peculiar group. Uh, they had tusks only on their lower jaw, and they had a pretty they had a variety in sizes. So they were like from very large to extremely large. Uh, and apart from their size, they didn't really change much. And just just because of that reason, I thought it would be such a great group to study. And this is why I decided to, to study this group because even though they went through these very dramatic climatic changes through throughout their evolutionary history, they didn't change a lot. So I wanted to see if that had, um, uh, if I could see something like that in their dietary behavior, let's say. But these are, this is the group of elephant-like animals, let's say, of proboscideans that I worked on. But it's true uh, that uh, you can find many fossils in many museums. They are definitely, uh, in favor of taphonomy because they have these huge teeth 
that they have very very thick enamel and it's really really hard to 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 get them like completely destroyed also their bones are very big so they can't really be transported very far and uh yeah that's why we find a lot of uh, skeletons and big bones sometimes skulls and loads of teeth i saw thomas's eyebrows raised when you mentioned good taphonomy <laughs> <laughs> lies damn lies <laughs> I, I, but, I did not react in any form. Of course you did. <laughs> um, that, so that you just you just barely touched on like the whole um, interaction with climate and their diversity. And I wanted to ask you before you get into that that what was the, the equipment that you were describing in your Alcorify? Was it a large piece of equipment on the table? Was that a SEM? No, it, it's a, just a microscope. It's a simple. Ah! Yes. It's just cool. the device that makes things look bigger. Uh, cool. That's how I could describe it. <laughs> uh, how do you go from the teeth to finding out about how the climate impacted their diet? How, how do you knit all those things together? Okay, so um, first of all, uh, my work, for my work, I utilize a series of methods, uh, which are all together um, called dental wear analysis. And uh, I use two methods in particular. I use dental microware analysis and dental mesoware analysis. Now, uh, dental microware analysis is what you see under the microscope. So it's like the microware. And it's essentially the scars that are left on the teeth after uh, an, any animal chews anything, right? And um, uh, basically, this microware um, represents the so-called last supper effect. So you can basically see the last meals of an animal with the microware. So it doesn't really, it represents only a small window in an animal's life. But it's really important if you want to see maybe causes of death. Sometimes, sometimes oh. you know, you could see that if you have like a, a substantial uh, sample, right? Um, and uh, then I use, <clears throat> excuse me, then I use dental measureware, which is a different technique. It's something that is being measured ma uh, macroscopically. So you don't really need a microscope for that. You, you either need um, a picture, the shape of a tooth, or maybe, um, uh, uh, how is this called in English? Like this, um, it's like this device that you measure angles with, but it's a uh, protractor. Protractor, exactly. Yes, the protractor. Or you need you need the protractor to measure some angles. This is how you do it in uh, proboscidian, in proboscidians, in elephants and relatives. Um, and uh, mesoware gives you a signal of a lifetime. So it gives you the general signal of an animal. It can it can tell you. Uh, in approximation, of course, the quality of food that the uh, that the animal was eating, and it all comes down to how abrasive the food was, how hard the food was. Was it soft food? Was it leaves and twigs and occasionally fruit? Uh, was it um, uh, this is what we call browsing? It could also be dirty browsing, which would include roots that uh, uh, or um, uh, vegetation that is very close to the ground that the animal, so the animal inevitably was taking a lot of dirt and dust with it, or we're talking about harder uh, foods like grasses and that are 
much harder than uh, leaves and twigs and fruits. Uh, so essentially, this is this is what we're looking with those uh, with dental wear analysis in general. And the whole concept is based on a potential modern analog. So in order to um, to realize what a fossil animal was eating, we need to first examine what modern animals are eating. So if we have a specific image, for example, if we know that a giraffe uh, having this specific diet in the wild has this type of microware and this type of mesoware. So statistically, an animal that, and a fossil animal that will, ha will have the same microware and mesoware image or a similar one has probably a similar diet as well. And of course, in order to, to validate that, we need a big sample because dental wear analysis is a statistical uh, uh, method. Uh, so yeah, the, so the more the teeth, the better the result, the clearer the result. <laughs> and uh, so this is about my method and how I connect this with climate is that I just, uh, uh, a simple correlation. I take uh, data from the literature, paleoclimatic data from the literature, and uh, I made sure that I have sampled uh, animals from throughout the Miocene, throughout this, uh, this era from the lower to uh, the upper Miocene. And then I see in all these different subcategories of the Miocene, um, how their diet changed and if it changed and how that uh, correlates to the specific climate in that specific uh, period. Cool. How do you find that it changes? Like, is it a very simple correlation where if things get hotter, they like to eat more grass? Or is, it, is that right? Yeah, no, it's not right, but it's... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> mean, you mean, look so confident. Savage burn. <laughs> Sorry, meaning that this is not, that was not the result, but that's exactly how it works. Cool. That's exactly how that's exactly that was exactly the thought behind it. Like mm -hmm. before the research before the study started, that was exactly the thought process. Yes, because during the Miocene, we also have also the Miocene, I want to say that this time period that, uh, that I'm working on, it's just such a great uh, period to study something like that because it has these very, very dramatic climatic changes. Uh, it has the so-called uh, mid-Miocene climatic optimum, which is a very, very big event. It's the warmest time interval of the last 25 million years. Uh, and uh, these animals, specifically the, the dinotherids, the fossil elephants I was working with, they went through it without any, like, like, like nothing happened. They were just there and then, you know, they continued to, 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 to exist. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was very interesting to see what happened, what happened there and uh, how uh, did, and if their diets uh, changed at all. They just sailed on through no problem. Yeah, they just did it. That's why I think it was such an interesting group to, to, to and they didn't really change. They, they, they had new species, but that it, it, they look very similar. Very yeah. similar. They didn't change much. It goes to show, I guess, that they're an incredibly robust, or they were at that time quite robust to the kind of climate change that we were talking about at that time. But often when we think about these kinds of things, like particularly people who may not be paleontologists are always like, so what does that tell us about today's climate change? Do, do you have a comment on what that might mean for elephants if the climate gets warmer or 
do you uh, kind of avoid those kind of conversations because we can never really tell? Yeah, this uh, that's also a very good question. I think this is uh, also very interesting to the, the results would be very interesting to 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 open a conversation about today as well, because uh, my my results uh, specifically showed that um, during uh, uh, during colder periods. Uh, the the diets of these animals was getting more and more abrasive not very abrasive so they were never really like grazing as we say which is like the exclusive consumption of hard grasses let's say or other hard um, uh, plants but um, it showed that actually uh, their diet changed and uh, my results also showed that right before their extinction at the end of this period called Miocene, uh, they had the most abrasive diets, mm -hmm. which probably shows also one of the reasons of their extinction. That is super cool research. Yeah, that's pretty, that's intense. Yeah. I, I'm such a cool group as well to work on. Like, the, I, I love when groups are just like inherently like charismatic and stuff. The stranger, the better, of course. But like when they're like cute and cuddling, you can see them today in a zoo. There's there's a there's oh, an extra God, layer. You're such a vertebrate worker. I oh. know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so we've had some really good questions in the chat, um, and uh, the first question comes from Zainzi, which is. Um, when you're working on this kind of stuff, did you ever do excavations or any work to actually find the teeth? And if you did, uh, did they end up in a museum and how does that work? Mm -hmm. That's that's actually a very good question. Uh, so the um, for, for my masters, uh, I exclusively worked with uh, fossil giraffes. The fossil giraffes that I worked on my masters were uh, by 90% excavated by me and my team, of course. So I did a lot of field work uh, for that. And most of the material included in my master thesis was excavated. The material included in my PhD thesis, which included also the fossil elephants and the um, uh, work on the, uh, on the effects of climate change uh, in the diets was most, yeah, was by 95%, I would say material that you can find in uh, museums already. So there was a lot of traveling in museums and collections, uh, local collections, private collections, you name it, uh, sampling, and that's it. There was not a lot of uh, excavation included in my uh, PhD research. However, when it comes to the, to the second part of the question, uh, excavated material that uh, is studied and is about to be published needs to have like every single bone that you publish, every single bone that you present in a publication to the world, name it, has to have a number on it, has to have the so-called inventory number. And this inventory number needs to be in a catalog of a museum or of a local collection, something that can be reached by everyone publicly. Uh, and uh, that is the rule. And uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think these rules changed relatively recently because there was, uh, I believe there was a big problem with fossils that are being kept by private collectors. 
And uh, if you are a private collector, for example, someone who, you know, if you like going outside and excavating your own fossils, or you like buying fossils and having them uh, uh, for yourself, uh, many times these people have really important fossils that uh, researchers want to publish, just to publish, not to have for, for themselves, obviously, just to publish them because they're really important findings. And they have problems many times because those private collectors, they don't want to give the fossils to museums, to, to public uh, institutions, because this is the only way that you can, you can publish something like that or anything, basically. Yeah. You're absolutely right. This is something that I, I look on outside of my normal research and the behaviors of research practices within paleontology. And yeah, we, we do have that like weird dichotomy in paleontology where there are some people who do this like um, as a hobby almost and like do it like outside of research and they have their own collections and they do what they want with fossils. And sometimes on the outside, it looks like we're at loggerheads and, you know, we're, we're kind of clashing in places, but sometimes that partnership works really well. So, yeah, it, the ideal situation would be exactly how you described, Alex, is that we have numbers on specimens and they get published and they get reachable by everybody. I actually thought that was a really good way of describing it, that people can reach them and people would talk about like having them in the public trust or that kind of stuff. Like, no, make sure that everybody can reach them in some capacity. And the the ones that like maybe don't end up in that position like I guess loss to science is a bit catastrophic but they do get a little bit lost and maybe maybe somewhere down the line they'll get re you know mm. re reintroduced to the world of museums and stuff but yeah I, it, it sounds like um might be something that we deal with for a long time to come as well yeah and since you mentioned it I just I just want to say that there are many private collectors out there that they are really interested in science as well. Mm. They will gladly give uh, the specimens to a museum or they will make agreements with the museum, having access to the specimen wherever they want, but they keep the, the specimen. And you know, there are always like ways to go around it, but there are many very good private collectors out there that they help science. Yeah, I think being ethical all around as best you possibly can is most important and that does tend to be when you work with museums and researchers all in a big group yeah absolutely where advice did you do your field work sorry before we go any further where were you most of your specimens collected from uh my specimens uh, i have done field work in uh, greece where i originally come from as well uh, cool. and uh, i have done field work once in austria too where i'm currently at ah <laughs> And uh, yeah, that's it. I haven't, I haven't done really. I've done a lot of field work in Greece, but I don't have, uh, I don't have a big collection of countries where I have done my. Where it, it's so unique to find somebody who can do field work in their own country. Like it's so rare for like I'm from Ireland. We I was about to say you're only saying that because you're Irish and you've got like one fossil <laughs> deposit and it's mushed by metamorphism anyway. Yeah, Greek fossils are so much more interesting. <laughs> I gotta say the um, vertebrate paleontologists in not only invertebrate paleontologists too in Greece are extremely active and the, there is no one I know that they don't spend their summer excavating. Really, That's so cool. There is a there is a lot of enthusiasm and of course you know it starts from uh, from the uh, PIs first, right? It starts from the principal investigators, the the mentors, the supervisors, the professors um it starts from there and uh they're really motivating and 
uh, actually, this is also one of the reasons why I got into paleontology, because I found the, the, the environment of an excavation really comforting in some way and really exciting as well. And that was what got me even more into it. So it was, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for what uh, my Greek mentors gave me and uh, offered. I, I I think that's that's so 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 nice and so true that um, I think there's something really really special about doing field work with people and the, there's that 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 kind of bond or that camaraderie you get from being in the field working with someone who really really loves and appreciates doing what they're doing in, in that moment. Like I can always remember going on the first few field trips uh, as an undergraduate to different places do geology. And everyone's kind of a bit hungover and like, oh, go look at some rocks, okay. And there's always, the, the lecturers are just on it. They're like, oh man, look at this. This is amazing. Like, so keen, so enthusiastic. And it just carry, and it just rubs off. And by the end of the trip, everyone's there like, mm. this is great. I'm so enthusiastic. There's so much to discover. Everywhere you look, there's something new. It's, um, it's something that, yeah, I don't know, geology, paleontology, it's, it's such a such a special thing to be able to have that bond with people and that bond with the kind of natural environment around you as well as you're doing it yeah it's such an important thing although like conversely i think also as well we need to remember that not everyone can do field work and so the great thing about our science is that we can also work in collections and work in labs and so that you know it can be much more accessible for everybody i suppose yeah. um we have a question in the chat we actually have quite a few questions in chat and i want to get to all of them so i will do my best but um, this, this I, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask this question because I'm pretty sure it's a loaded question because I think I know who's asked this question and I think they may be from one of these places. But someone has said, what's better doing fieldwork in Greece or Austria? <laughs> and I, I have a sneaking suspicion that they may be Greek. <laughs> I really want to know who that was. But, uh... Uh, you don't have to answer if you don't want to upset anyone. No, no, no. I, I can't really. I, I, I will obviously say that my my dearest memories is uh, with my Greek team. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I really don't know what's uh, what's better. I've gone to one excavation here in Austria, and I've I've gone. I've been in. I don't even remember how many in in Greece. So I can't really. I can't really compare. But you know, when I'm thinking of of the good times excavating um, my mind goes to the time back in my home country mm. and you know excavating with my friends and all the people that i have uh made family and they're still like uh, my best friends today uh yeah so there's no comparison for me mm. that's nice that's a, that's a good answer i don't think you've offended anyone then well done <laughs> <laughs> um the second question is and it's it's taking us slightly backwards um, but the question is uh, from a friend of the show, Jim Jam, and it says, I remember reading a while back that living giraffes like to chew on bones. Yeah. Um, have you found any evidence for this in fossil giraffes by looking at their teeth? No, no, I haven't seen anything, uh, anything like that. No, no, nothing, nothing really. And not even in, um, in uh, museum specimens, I would say. I haven't found something like that, but... The thing is that I first I would like to see how the teeth of a bone chewing giraffe look like. Because oh yeah, that's true. You'd have to feed some giraffes some bones and do some comparative work. 
or just take samples from a giraffe that just oh that's true yeah you know or yeah which is not really good or ethical to do so (laughs) don't try this at home um but uh yeah i don't think i have seen something like that i i would expect to see something very strange under the microscope right something that i wouldn't expect to see there and i don't think i have seen something like that right I absolutely love how Thomas went in. Let's just let's feed giraffes bones. I mean, why not? <laughs> why not? Because there's an easier way to do it. Is there? Just find a giraffe that's already eaten a bone naturally. Wait, let, right. Let's just step back for a second here. Which one of those two things is actually easier, if you think about it? Well, either way, you need to get the teeth from the giraffe. Well, that's a different story, and that that's we a can, problem for another yeah, that's, day. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a future Thomas problem. Um, okay, we're not feeding anything any, to anybody. <laughs> hey, do you want to know? Do you want to know my favorite giraffe fact? Which I, which I, this is a legitimate fact. Is that for a very long time, I believe up to the Victorian period, many people thought that giraffes were completely silent and didn't make any noises. It's like an urban myth that giraffes are silent. And I've heard people, like when I was at school, I remember someone telling me that fact and being like genuine. And it's not true. They make noises. And they make a lot of noises that yeah. humans can't hear. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, I would expect, to be honest, that it was until recently that they thought that giraffes were like completely uh, unable to produ- to produce noise. I had I no know. idea. Yeah. Alex, the chat is asking if you can make a giraffe noise. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> That's a very good answer. <laughs> Well, you should, you should have just sat there silently for a minute. And then said, there you go, I've done it. You hear it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you want me to do it again? Hold on, wait. There it is. <laughs> I, I guess, uh, can I actually segue this time? Fine. <laughs> All right. But normally your I... segues are so fluid. This is so jarring. Because well, you pointed it out to me before we started. <laughs> I'm sorry, I made um, you very self-conscious. A little, just a little bit. Um, but I think this is super, super interesting to talk about because Alex, you have left the purely academic realm to move your science and your skills into science communication, outreach, and citizen science. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> where do where do I start this day? <laughs> it's just like so. Tell us everything you've ever done ever from the very beginning. <laughs> Well, why don't we start? Why don't we start the really simplest thing? What What do you do? What's What is your job? Right. So uh, my job right now is uh, on uh, science communication, public uh, outreach management, and citizen science. Uh, basically, I repeated what <laughs> Emma just said, um, and uh, yeah, that that's a pretty fresh uh, thing for me. I'm in my new job for less than a month now. Uh, so science communication was something that uh, interested me a lot, even though I was not really, um, I wouldn't call myself like a, sci- a science communicator, like whatsoever, especially when your next guest is like a hardcore science communicator. You're literally, I, you're literally communicating science right now. Yes, but, but I, I wouldn't call myself a science communicator. Like That's I fair. am communi- I am communicating science. I, I, I am doing it as much as I can through my social media. Um, I'm doing it on Twitter. I'm doing it on Instagram as much as I can. And, but, uh, you know, 
that that was it. And but the, in general, dissemination was something that interested me very much. Uh, but um, I had the, the feeling that in Austria was something that was not really wide or very well known. But that changed relatively recently. So I was, let's say, I was very lucky because now more and more jobs are opening in Austria about science communication and citizen science. And uh, right now I'm working on, uh, I'm working for a university alliance called uh, UDRES, the European University, which is basically a university um, alliance uh, consisting of six universities around Europe. And uh, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with paleontology. It's about, um, they, deal, they deal a lot with sustainability and, uh, um, a lot with uh, uh, impact on climate, uh, which is not so far away fr from like what I was doing for my PhD. So it's still definitely in my area of interest. I, I just, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just love the idea of you sitting down to a meeting and then you start talking about all these things and you goes, have you ever thought about elephants and climate change? Because I can help you out with that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, they they knew my background very well. So, you know, they probably found something fitting for me to take before this job. So, you know, we will see. Uh, uh, but yeah, my, my tasks, uh, which are not completely solid yet because I'm still very fresh, but my tasks include, let's say, anything that has to do with dissemination um, and public outreach of uh, the whole university alliance. On any subject or mostly... On the subjects that are being uh, that are most prominent in this university alliance, which is uh, uh, mostly uh, about sustainability, as I said, there is a lot about uh, well-being and active aging. There is a lot about um, uh, human contribution to artificial intelligence. So these are wow. these are the main three topics that are being uh, uh, discussed and researched in this university alliance. Whoa, that's yeah. so cool. It's a very disparate list of things. Did you, how do you, what skills do you think that your research career has like given you that has allowed you to flourish in that sort of environment? Mm -hmm. uh, this is like a weird job interview now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's like, it's, so tell me about, tell me about what makes you a really good candidate for this position, Alex. <laughs> you, you know what? I think this is a, this is a really interesting uh, question though, because uh, many people, in paleontology, no one, in science, no one teaches us how to 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 uh, market ourselves. We don't know how to do self-marketing, so we need to to figure it out on our own completely. And uh, this is very important for any uh, job interview, whether it's a postdoc or you go in the industry or you go into science communication or anything. Um, so yeah, uh, my. So during my bachelor studies, where I was with my uh, with my Greek team, and we were excavating from here to there, um, uh, during this time, alongside our excavations, um, my former supervisor, uh, she was also building many uh, small regional museums, uh, which you know all we were all together managing from the ground. Right, I was mostly responsible about tour guides or about, uh, in some museums, I um, wrote protocols for tour guides and, uh, you know, I showed people how to make tour guides. So I think the fact that uh, I was in the establishment of many paleontological exhibitions and I was in contact with um, 
stakeholders and um, uh, regional uh, government uh, people. I think this is one of the of the very important skills that I uh, developed that was essentially like really good for the position that I have right now. I think this is one of the main factors that I was picked as the successful candidate uh, for this position. And um, uh, then the fact, you know, that I was active on social media, I think maybe that uh, played some role because the, the, this university that I am working right now is uh, trying to be as engaged as possible. And we are living in the era of uh, social media. So I think someone with the knowledge, at least a little bit of knowledge of disseminating, um, of communicating science through social media, it's, it's a plus. Yeah, I think that um, that first point you raised is, is kind of so important in the fact that as a as a scientist, as someone who you know works their way through a field, yeah, you, you have to figure out everything for yourself, and that includes all of those bits as well. It always includes. It's never just like the research; it's the admin and the contacting people around it, and being like, okay, well, if I'm going to dig, I'm going to need some permits. Where do I go to? I'm going to need to talk to this person. I'm going to need to talk to this person. I need to go onto this land. All of this all comes under this like banner of research, and it's it's. We're not told enough, but it is so super important for any job you can have outside of uh, outside of like the strict world of academia, especially something like science communication, when you're having to talk to so many different people at so many different levels and disseminate all your information in slightly different ways. It's it's uh, it's such a crucial skill that you you that you do really really pick up as a uh, as, as, as a PhD student or someone who's involved in research. And yeah, I think, I think that's, it's a, that's a really, really valid and important point to raise and remind people. <laughs> what I essentially heard when Alex was talking was, I have like loads of skills that I didn't realize I picked up. And <laughs> when you go through a research career, you're like science, narrow, blinkered, always yeah. must do that one thing. But actually you pick up so many things on the way around it and we should be taught to market these. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I, what I wanted to say that uh, uh, if you're doing paleo, it's not just that. The qualifications that you're gaining from that are, the, it's a long list of qualifications. Whether you're doing statistics, statistics are, I don't know, are, are, are desired from so many companies out there. If you decide to go outside of academia, right? Or if you decide to do uh, anything else, uh, science communication or any form of communication presenting at conferences, uh, this is also really important. Uh, you know, publications or not, like even one publication is, uh, is uh, also really important. Uh, to show your interpersonal skills or how good you can cooperate with people. So you can, you collect so many qualifications out of paleontology and people never really understand that. Yeah. And the communi the communi uh, I hate to bring it back to communication as well, but if you're, if you're a scientist and you can't communicate, then what are you even really doing? Because you're just, you're just yes. talking to yourself effectively. And I, I believe it's a manual skill. I believe that you can you, you can train. To oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's a lot of people who are very worried about communicating and find communicating very difficult. But the, the other thing about communication is nowadays, there are so many different ways to do it. You don't have to stand up in front of people face to face. Like you can do it 
over the web or you can do it on social media or you can do it through art or you can you literally if you can imagine it i mean you could write a play if you really wanted to if you can imagine it you can do it yes um, ab absolutely and I, I wanted to say that i uh, i believe that i don't have any chance in science communication because i live in a german speaking country my german is not that good uh, i use english in my everyday life, right? But I'm not a native speaker. Therefore, if I want to be a science communicator, I need to write a lot and write a lot of articles, but in which language am I supposed to do it? So I read, so, and, and my, my Greek is not good either anymore because my, my academic language is English. So I cannot speak well uh, academically in Greek. This is something that's so close to my heart because I'm exactly the same, my Irish, couldn't describe my science in Irish if somebody was paying me, but I can tell you it in English. But I can't like make a funny joke to you in English very well. I'm hilarious in Irish. <laughs> you like to think that you're hilarious in Irish. <laughs> That's very true. But um, or or hibernar English as we call it. It's not true Irish because we just mix match the words. But that's such an important consideration because you have three languages and you like it's so wonderful to have so many languages but to which one that you choose or you use them for different things and yes. english is always the the lingua franca or the, mm. the predominant ling language in science and that really erases so much more than we think it does because we think that having a uniform language is great because you know everybody can communicate in it but actually we lose so much nuance by only choosing one yeah i think people in the chat are, are empathizing there are people in the chat saying that they they also struggle with said problem so actually, Alex, here's, this is an interesting question. And if this is a personal question that you don't want to answer, please do not feel that you have to answer it. And I'll delete it out of the uh, podcast later. Don't worry about it. But um, <laughs> I, I often speak to a lot of colleagues who speak, who English is not their primary or first language. Um, then they, they like you said, they research in, in English and they write in English. Do you still think and dream and things in Greek or has it turned to English? Yes, completely. Even, you know, if I'm alone uh, at home with Tammy, my dog, my dog is Tammy, I speak to her in English, or if I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, I'm just going, I'm just walking nervously around the, the, the flat, story of my life, and uh, <laughs> yeah, things that I need to do. So I'm, I will just walk around and I'll talk to myself and I'll be like, in English, of course, okay, now I need to vacuum clean, and then I need to do this, I need to do laundry, yada, yada. So I'll speak to myself. Yeah, that's so. This so one of the one of the strangest uh, experiences. So I obviously I, I only speak English. I speak no other languages to a level which would be tolerated or acceptable by any other human being. <laughs> um, so I, one of the most interesting experiences I ever had was that a very good friend of mine, another paleontologist. Maybe we can get her on the show in the future. Who's Italian, and we went to China together for some field work, and. Uh, obviously she speaks English uh, amazingly. Her writing in English is amazing as well. Uh, and she spends a lot of time communicating in English. Um, and the Chinese collaborators we were with thought it'd be really nice to put on some Botticelli in the car, some Italian music for her. So that like, I don't know, she'd feel at home. And we were trying, and she had to, she asked them to turn it off because it was making her feel nauseous, listening to music in Italian, translating it to English, and then talking to us to, in English while people were talking Chinese around her. And she just was like, I can't, I can't deal with it. <laughs> so, uh, it's a real, it's a real interesting problem, which I think, well, I'm very privileged in that 
English is the language that we use for science, but yeah, that's... So from a scientific communication perspective, what language is it that you use predominantly? Is it, is it, is it just the English in Germany or do you, do you also, are you trying to work towards doing more Greek stuff or? No, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really, I, I didn't think of getting into the Greek market, mm. let's say, uh, even though it's not really saturated. So I could do something there maybe, uh, but I don't feel like I have the language skills to do that whatsoever. And, um, uh, my job is entirely in English, but I don't have to write a lot of, I, I, I don't need to be a writer for them. I need to be a communicator mm -hmm. by creating content, by managing content, uh, which is something that I really like uh, doing. And um, uh, further on by maybe writing some proposals for future projects, but uh, that's it. They. I, I'm, I believe I'm not required, at, at least I'm not required yet to write a scientific communi a science communication article for them, which, I mean, theoretically, I could do that as long as it goes on like two rounds of uh, proofreading, but yeah. It sounds like you've really found your, your niche, to use a evolutionary term, <laughs> you found like your, your spot where it works for you, whatever way you need to communicate, and it, it's, really yeah. inspiring to find somebody who has like very comfortably left academia to do this really cool thing and definitely found the place that they sound like they should be in first of all thank you very much <laughs> um, this is this is really this is really kind of you uh but it was definitely a struggle leaving academia it was not easy for me at all and uh, to whoever listens and uh, you know they're thinking of maybe uh, leaving academia. Uh, I would say just you know it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. But uh, try to balance things uh, a little bit in your life and see your priorities. My priorities were to stay here with my partner and my dog. I didn't want to to go to another country to have a postdoc. There was a possibility for me to to go somewhere else. I decided not to. And um, uh, also it was a lot of the uncertainty. Mm. Uh, of the future and of course uh, you know needless to mention a uh, mental health yeah yeah absolutely I, I think we're all echoing that in some way shape or form given that we're all on very precarious contracts and and Chris works in an allied field now as well so mm. first of all thank you for being so candid about that and I think it's on the minds of quite a lot of people who will be listening to this and it's a really important thing to communicate, going back to communication. And I think yeah. you've done that really candidly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to, to say that because I, I, I believe that uh, people should talk about this part of uh, academia. They should talk about uh, leaving academia. Yeah, and, I, uh, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Because I, I think quite a lot of people who listen to the podcast, I think, are probably academics. Uh, especially like early career researchers who are probably well aware of this, but I'm, I'm sure there are quite a few people who listen who are really interested in fossils and are really keen and really want to become or join acad the academic world and, and you know work on fossils and, and do the science. And I think that there is an important conversation that we need to have that science is like the academic world is not the be all and end all of paleontology. You can be paleontologist, yeah. at, you know, an amateur level as a hobbyist, 
You can also come and dip your toes in the water and do a bachelor's or a master's or a PhD and then decide that it's not for you and then leave, but still continue. I know, Alex, we talked in the in the pre-chat, in the warm-up, we talked that you're still going to continue working on your projects uh, on the side. And and this is, I think this is the thing is like, I think we all should just acknowledge that everyone's path, there is no path that you that you have to take to be a paleontologist. And I think everyone meanders and rivers in their own way. And I think we should really, we should talk about that. Yes, absolutely agree. And thanks for, for saying that uh, as well. I also want to say that these years that I was in academia, they were, I mean, uh, I don't know. I can't say how great they were without getting emotional. I mean, Aww. I really this time of my life. It was, it was such a privilege, you know, being only being able to see like, what's behind the scenes in a museum. This is so fascinating to me up to this day, even though I've been to, in so many museums for studying so much material and uh, it's so fascinating. And I'm, and this is the first thing that I say to people that when they ask me, how is, how is paleontology in general? I always tell them is as much fun as you imagine it to be. Is as you, cool you do, as you definitely do not work on decay experiments, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had this question a lot from Mark, oh, not about the uh, decay experiment. I, I had I had this question a lot by my new colleagues because uh, you know many people are saying to me, "Oh, you're the first paleontologist I've, uh, I've ever met," you know, which is, I mean, we're not that many. Uh, so they, many of my colleague, my new colleagues asked me about that, like, "How is paleontology? Like, uh, is it cool? Is it boring? How is it?" And I always tell them that that uh, is, it's. It's cool. It's like as cool as you imagine it to be, and even more. It's kind of magical in a way, and I love how you mentioned that. That it doesn't get old. That you, no matter how many museums you visit, you're still like in awe of everything that you see in front of you. And it's exactly the same for me in a different way. Where I don't really work on bones a lot. I'm more based on my computer, but. I still have that wow feeling when I walk into a collection, even though it doesn't mean anything to me. But for you, if it means something to you, like data wise, yeah. and you still get in awe every time that you see it, it it's pretty cool. So yeah. When you, when you publish something or when you have um, data that are publishable, that means that you did something new. You're adding something new to, to science. And you were the first person to ever discover that and experience that. So I think this is a very, very big deal. Even if it's just a number, it's it might be just a number to other people, but to you, it will to to you and to your peers, the people that understand your work and they are in your own in your domain, it will mean a lot. <laughs> um, that was surprisingly really... sensimental and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very touching. This is it's really like nice. totes emotion. Yeah. Um, I, I want to segue, or I want to end with a segue. Of course um, you do. <laughs> anybody on the stream or looking at the recording will see a beautiful array of plants behind Alex. <laughs> I think Alex is the most exceptional plant parent. Um, could you describe the best plant that you would recommend for somebody starting off and wanting to build a jungle? Because I'm the kind of person that kills plants. <laughs> oh, my God. We can have the first ever paleo party plant point. There you go. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the first question that I, would, that I would ask is why do you kill your plants? Do you order? Mainly you through hatred. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you neglect them or do you 
care about them too much. Oh, I, I think I'd be a caring about them too much person. I'd be like, do you need more water? Do you, do you want more sunlight? Do you, do you want to do this? I, I tend to uh, move the plants around <laughs> like constantly like, is this okay? Is this fine? Is it, do you want more? Do you, okay, I'm so maybe a little bit neurotic. <laughs> so you care about them too much. Okay, so I would say, well, I would go with the classic. I would say a golden pothos is a, is a really good. Oh, they're uh, gorgeous. It's a, it's a really good plant. And, uh, you know, they're very, like, you can basically do anything to them. They will <laughs> you set them on fire. They will be fine. Uh, well, these are, these are weeds in nature. So, you know, they grow really fast and uh, really long and really quickly. Uh, yeah, I would say pothos uh, varieties in general, like uh, all the the epipremnum, epipremnum aureum varieties are really good and they're really beautiful as well. Uh, uh, stay away from cacti and succulents if you are over terror. You, you, uh, you mean like these ones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's, that's really cute. I mean, how oh, long do you have that for? A week? Two okay. weeks? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, it's not here very long. <laughs> I, I just, I just, my favorite thing about all of this is that, like, we got a fern and we murdered the fern pretty quickly. But then, the like, we but we looked after it. It was in the light. Like, we didn't give it too much light. We watered it and everything else, and it just shriveled up and just died. There is a fern living in a crack in the wall of our house in direct sunlight. And it's like thriving. Uh, anyway. Thing I never understand. I have we've got like an enormous cactus, like big, uh, like the padded leaves cactus, and it was doing awfully. And we were like, "Oh man, it's on its way out. We're we're just going to put it out to pasture and leave it outside, and hopefully it'll like go on to a better life." No, it did better than it ever did with us caring. <laughs> Suddenly, it's got like eight new pads. It's huge. Oh, oh my goodness. <sighs> that's, yeah. I was going to say, we probably shouldn't talk too much about ferns with Chris because <laughs> oh, at the beginning of the pandemic, a fern was left in our office and we couldn't obviously go back in because of like thingy. And it basically looks like if you breathed on it too heavily, it would blow away. <laughs> it's just so, yeah, so like it's so actually sad. a fire hazard now. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, to be, to be fair, to be fern. Oh. Uh, oh. Uh, ferns are not very easy. Yeah, uh, they're very difficult to look after. Yeah. They're not, they're not very easy. So don't worry if you if you kill the fern, don't don't worry about it. Many people do. I have killed the ferns. So. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. But basically, what you're good saying company. is that I should. So I don't have a pothos, which uh, is definitely a big mistake. I should definitely get one. But what you're saying is, if it's a weed in nature, I can look after it. <laughs> Well, the, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's well, a paleo party top tip right there. If you yeah, want well, to look after plants and you're not very good at it, just get a weed. The plants that are weeds in nature that, you know, they are, there are some beautiful weeds mm. out there. Uh, they are very durable. You can overwater them, you can underwater them. Mm. You know, it's easy to take, uh, to take care of them. That's why I would say, yes, go for it. I have a lot of weeds in, in here, actually. That's, so this is like the pigeon conversation with Franz last week, where we, was, we were talking about underrated animals and how pigeons get a really bad rap because yeah, they're pests. Weeds is the same. Let's stop using the word weeds. Weeds is derogatory, and these really? plants are not weeds. They're just, some people don't like them. 
But they're cool plants. <laughs> yeah. Let's say likely to be invasive. <laughs> okay, that's slightly different. All right, well, there we go. Oh, yeah. okay, right. We can go with that. <laughs> right, well, on that bombshell, I think it's time. Um, time to end there. We've been going for over an hour. Uh, yeah, so... Huh, well... I wasn't expecting to talk about plants at the end of, of of our little podcast, but there we are. Here we here we are. Um, so don't worry, everyone. We will be back next week. And don't forget that you can listen to us anywhere where you can download podcasts. Our website is very much up to date with upcoming guests. And don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter at Paleo Party for more information. A very special thank you to Alex. Um, and... The, I, what I will say is that the chat has been asking to see your dog, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to say, "Can you get your dog?" Because I didn't know <laughs> if it would be awkward or anything like that. Also, our podcast listeners won't be able to see said dog. <laughs> so, what I will say is, you can follow uh, Alex on Twitter at Alex Zaffis, um, which the information will be on the podcast, but also on the website if you want to follow it. And uh, on your Instagram as well, there's lots of pictures of pooch and plants, right? So, yes, my, my Instagram, disclaimer, my Instagram is not uh, paleontology related, it's uh, plant related, but on Fridays I host the Fossil Friday quiz on my stories. So, yes, if you like quizzes on Instagram, you can follow me at PaleoAlex, the, uh, written the British way. The, co- the correct way, thank you very much. The correct way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, sorry. sorry, I was just going to say, just follow you, on, <laughs> follow you on Instagram for plant tips and for dogs and for uh, also for Fossil Fridays. Perfect. Well, that's it. We're going to round up there. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you next time on Paleo Party. So goodbye, everyone. Bye.